And hello from Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And we're coming off of a really busy Thursday at the State House, and we will get to a student rally that uh, took place on the State House steps Thursday morning, but a lot of news on Thursday on the ongoing teacher evaluation saga. Played out at the State Board, then it played out at uh, the State House. Clark, you followed this issue so closely. Give us a rundown of the latest report on teacher evaluation. Sure. The thing to keep in mind is uh, this is actually a brand new report. We have been talking about evaluations and evaluation data for about a year and a half. Uh, We looked at a review of 2014-2015 teacher evaluations that we were able to publish thanks to a public records request. But this newest piece of information on Thursday delivered first to the State Board of Education, then a rare joint session of the House and Senate Education Committees was a brand new, first-of-its-kind report that looked at the 2015-2016 teacher evaluation data. This is significant because this is the first round of data that is completely subject to the career ladder salary law provisions. Uh, This data will be used unless there is a change in the law or administrative This data will be used as the basis uh, for teachers earning raises going forward. And uh, so what the report found notably is that there appears to be significant improvement among school districts in terms of compliance with um, state laws and state rules regarding the evaluations. Uh, To be fair, the previous report on the old data was criticized because some of those requirements were not in place. And so uh, a lot of people said that was unfair and, and inappropriate. Felt, and it felt like as we watched the, the legislative committee Thursday afternoon, the state board seemed to be going out of their way to say, we think administrators are really trying to do this right. right. Uh, there's not, um, you know, th- th- no, they're taking it seriously. They're, they're working hard to try to do this. Yeah, and so there's several things that are expected in law to be documented, included in, in the evaluation. You're supposed to use... Uh, this evaluation tool that would be based on the state's official tool, which is called the Danielson Framework. There's 22 components and four domains where you measure teacher effectiveness. There's also supposed to be two documented classroom observations and uh, additional evidence and measures that can be included in there. What the report found, notably, is that 49% of all school districts or charters that were screened for this latest review were in full Uh, compliance with state law regarding the evaluations. Uh, It actually found that about 36% of the school districts and charters were still out of compliance. We're Mm -hmm. still not meeting the state regulations. We talked about the feedback a little bit where district administrators said they were sent mixed signals. Uh, They would seek more training, more clarification uh, about what is going to be expected of them going forward. And that was one of my big takeaways from Thursday, as I heard there's still a lot of confusion about what this whole process entails and what administrators are expected to do. Yeah, Blake Ute from the State Board of Education, in summarizing the report uh, to the legislature, said there is not a common understanding across the state in terms of what is required and what is expected under the teacher evaluations. Uh, And so they issued several recommendations, notably to continue offering uh, training and increased guidance to uh, schools about this procedure. And, And this is important because the legislature... The Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, the Governor, Butch Otter, have said, in order to continue justifying teacher raises going forward, we need to have an accountability model that's working, that's valid, and in place. And so, 
as we got into the report, I thought that it revealed maybe a little bit of ongoing tension between mm-hmm. yeah. some of these state entities, the State Board of Education, the State Department of Education. Uh, one of the reasons was because the feedback that districts provided was they wanted, there was confusion. They wanted more guidance. Uh, but then uh, Dr. Christina Linder, who, who was working with the State Board of Education on this review of teacher evaluation, said that in 2015, in conjunction with the rollout of this career ladder salary law, that the state... Department of Education essentially... Shariabara's department as opposed to the state board. Right. The state department of education essentially told school districts they would have a wide degree of latitude uh, with what will be accepted with their teacher evaluations plan and sort of indicated that what they came up with would be accepted and it wasn't made clear that there are very specific provisions in Idaho law that needed to be met and followed. That was what Dr. Linder said to the state board of education... um, the first part of the meeting on and, Thursday. And Thursday afternoon, you, you tried literally in, to catch up with uh, Sherry Ibarra about those comments. I mean, you, you tracked her down in a hallway, and, and what did she have to say? She, the superintendent told me she did not recall specifically what she told school districts. And then she said, I asked her about it three times, and, and she said, you're going to have to ask Dr. Linder what she was talking about. She asked me to be more specific about what time frame we were talking about and who said what. And uh, I want to play about a minute of that interview, and I do want to apologize. The sound quality is not going to be perfect. As you said, Kevin, I had to follow the superintendent into the tunnel under the state capitol building, and so maybe turn down the volume just a bit, but you will be able to hear. Uh, And so I start off by asking Superintendent Ibarra about Dr. Linder's comments and asking her what she told school districts in 2015. But in terms of what the department communicated back in 2015, in terms of latitude or, or, or what what might be accepted, um, do you recall specifically what, what you said or what the department said at that time? I, you would need to give me a specific statement. Well, when, when Dr. Linder said at the state board today... Uh, you would have to ask Dr. Linder about her statement. Did you tell districts, though, that they would be given latitude, that there would be uh, whatever they came up with with evaluations would be accepted? Uh, you know, or when? In 2015. Did I? Repeat your question. I don't think I understand. It was my understanding that Dr. Christina Linder said that the State Department of Education communicated to school districts in 2015 after the career ladder was passed. Um, I'm not going to speak to Dr. Linder's statement. You'd have to ask her about that. And where she's finding that. Yeah. Okay, so that's what the superintendent said uh, in response to my questions. But, Kevin... Where do you think we go from here? What, what do you think happens next? Well, that's the really interesting part, and that's kind of the action at the legislature in the, the next couple of weeks. I was really surprised as we had the House and Senate Education Committees hearing this report about evaluations that nobody brought up the big question that they're going to have to deal with in the next few weeks. How do you train administrators to do evaluations more effectively, and who does that job? Because we've got two proposals on the table. Right, we've right? got neither or here. We've got uh, Sherry Ibarra's uh, recommendation that she can do it in-house within the State Department of Education for $300,000. You've got Governor Otter wants to continue to have the state board in charge of this uh, evaluations process and the training process at a price tag of $2.5 million dollars. I mean, it's a pretty fair spread of money and a pretty clear political uh, difference in terms of uh, approach on this. And nobody in the committees brought it up at all. 
So that's still a question that's going to have to be settled in starting in the, the Budget Committee and in, in the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. Uh, you know, the legislature is also going to have to decide whether to fund year three of the career ladder at a cost of $62 million. I think there's still pretty widespread support, uh, and I don't get a sense that the career ladder is in any serious danger right now. But this whole issue of who does the training and at what cost very much left unresolved and even left unresolved a little bit at JFAC Friday morning. It was. Uh, speaking of JFAC, they're the ones that set the public school budget, as, as most of you will know. The leaders of the House Education and Senate Education Committee came before JFAC Friday morning to outline their funding priorities. They both were united in the fact that they said the top priority for both committees is continuing to fund teacher raises under the career ladder. So that appears uh, safe, as you said. They talked about uh, a willingness, a desire to help out school districts with their health insurance costs, although they did not get into specifics about which plan they favored for doing that. And they sort of acknowledged that there were different proposals on the table for handling the training of the teacher evaluations, but they kind of left that as a decision uh, to the Joint Budget Committee. And so we'll they find out... about which way to go, basically. Right. They, yeah. they didn't issue a, 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 a firm recommendation to go either way. So we're left to stay tuned, uh, but we won't have to wait long because Kevin and I will cover uh, the setting of the public school budget, which right now uh, is scheduled for just over a week away on February 27th. Right. So a lot we had to get to there on the evaluations topic, and there's more that you can read at idahoednews.org. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. That that's a lot of stuff to get to, but a lot of uh, a lot of stuff emerged out of uh, you know out of Thursday's report. So we wanted to try to run it down in detail. Sure, and that wasn't the only thing by far going on at the state house. I want to talk a little bit uh, about a large rally uh, that took place. Earlier that day on the State House steps, this was something that was organized uh, by local high school students mm -hmm. uh, in the, the Boise and in the West Ada uh, area. I, I, we both got a chance to, uh, to watch the rally and, and interact with some of the folks. Uh, we had video uh, from the rally and a story uh, on our side. But the bottom line is several hundred students from the Boise area took it upon themselves to organize this rally, and it was a rally in support of public schools and a rally in opposition to President Trump's new education secretary, Betsy DeVos, right? Right, Kevin? right. And he, we have a, a good uh, roundup of the rally, and you get a sense of what the students were talking about, what brought them out to the State House Thursday morning. You also get a sense, a lot of discussion on our Facebook page uh, from people supporting the students in their rally and folks opposing the rally, which you know, occurred during the school day. Sure. Um, we also tracked down some of the you know, attendance numbers for the Boise School District. And, and really, you look at the numbers for Thursday as opposed to the previous Thursday. Actually, the uh, number of uh, excused and unexcused absences was down from a week earlier. So the, we're not thinking in terms of this being a massive walkout, but that was part of the uh, the debate on Facebook. But Go to idahoodnews.org. You can see video. You can um, read about the rally. And, um, yeah. But, what, but, but, what this but, does show is that we've got this ongoing... Yeah. Um, the controversy over the Betsy DeVos nomination doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. One of the most widely read stories on our page this week was actually just kind of a, 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 a step in the process. Kind of a, you know, an incremental story in which... Uh, you know, we tracked down a story from the Ontario, Oregon paper where a uh, staffer for uh, Senator Mike Crapo basically said, yeah, about 95% of the calls on Betsy DeVos were in opposition, 
which sort of spilled some news that uh, the the Senate offices have been pretty uh, reluctant to share. Not surprising. We knew that there was a very strong uh, campaign against that nomination. So the numbers aren't really surprising, but it's uh, news that they actually did come out in, in some form or another. And again, a lot of dialogue uh, on our Facebook page about uh, Crapo's vote in favor of DeVos in light of the calls and emails and opposition. So you can check that out on our Facebook page. You know, we continue to kind of follow this uh, DeVos nomination and confirmation. Uh, we're not going to cover it day to day because it's all happening in D.C. But, you know, you got to acknowledge this is a this is a big deal right now. And, it, and it's played out in a way that has transcended strict uh, education circles. You're seeing it on late night uh, talk shows. You're seeing it discussed far and wide on social media in a way that maybe you didn't see uh, when, say, previous Education Secretary Arnie Duncan uh, was up for confirmation. This is really something that, uh, I don't know if captivated is, is the right word, but really has the attention of a lot of people in this country right now beyond just the standard education circles where we mostly spend a lot of our time. Right. If, if you'd made a bet with me a year ago that the next education secretary would be Lampoon on Saturday Night Live, I would have given you really good odds and you would have made a lot of money off of me. Right. This is really, it's unusual, it's historic, and the the firestorm surrounding this uh, this new cabinet member doesn't seem to be subsiding. And people feel passionate about it. I mean, that was the basis for the, the student rally in, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, and so it's not going away. Uh, but if you're interested in that, it's some of our, our, our most read stories of, of the last several weeks. Head over to IdahoEdNews.org, and you can get caught up on, on what went on in the rally, what uh, the staffers from Senator Crapo's office said, and the rest of our coverage. But I want to shift gears and, and stay a little bit closer to Idaho. Um, we had a chance to look at some new go-on numbers, and go-on numbers are important in the state of Idaho, Kevin, as you know, because they are related to sort of a cousin to the state's primary goal for education, which is to have 60% of young adults hold a post-secondary degree or certificate by the year 2020. What did the newest go-on numbers show us? Well, they're not very encouraging, and they're significant for all the reasons that you just mentioned. I I feel like the go-on numbers kind of got overshadowed this week by by the bigger, uh, sexier news of the week. But here's the bottom line. So, For the class of 2016, for the high school graduating class of 2016, 46% went on to college immediately after high school. That's identical to what we saw in 2015, which represented a significant drop-off from 2014. Those numbers are not moving up, but there may be a silver lining. The state board uh, did uh, take some comfort in the fact that enrollment in the state's colleges and universities increased in 2016. So, and they attribute that in part to this uh, direct admissions program yeah. where uh, eligible high school seniors get a letter in the mail that says, hey, you're, you're in, all you need to do is apply and you'll, you can you know, attend some of the state's universities or all of the state's universities. Um, so they're seeing an increase in in-state enrollment. And that's important for a lot of reasons. And they didn't get into a lot of this, but you definitely, as a state, you're hoping to keep as many students pursuing a college education in state. You're trying to avoid that brain drain where, you know, high school grads and you know talented young people go and pursue an education outside of your state, where uh, odds are they may not come back. Sure, and they may just start to pursue their career where they went to school. So you do want to try to keep more kids in school in state. So that's important, but 
you know, 46% does not help you get to this uh, 60% number that has been talked about for seven years now. I'm not, I don't want to criticize the goal. I don't want to say the goal is not worthwhile. That's not my call to make. But I do want to say it's hard to envision getting to 60% of some sort of completion rate when 46% uh, are going on uh, unless you have uh, significant phenomena in, in the next year or so or a huge group of people moving in from out of state with degrees it just seems like the math's not going to work no i mean you're getting to a level now of where it's mathematically statistically impossible to get there and, and that's not just me saying that i mean bob right. Locken, who studies this stuff a lot more closely who's a data hound <laughs> who gets this stuff a lot more uh more than i ever will has said for a couple of years, uh, we're not going to get to 60% by 2020. And I think there's a growing acknowledgement, um, maybe not publicly, but I think there's kind of a growing sense that, okay, it's probably not going to happen in 2020. Sure. We'll keep watching it, though. We'll keep putting those numbers in context. One more big story I want to get to this week uh, before we wind things down. We got a report from the legislature's interim school funding committee uh, and then some follow-up action the next day. But what did the initial reports say, and and what is this group looking at? Well, the report is kind of a rundown of a lot of what this committee looked at last summer. The the committee had five meetings across the state last year, and and it was really just kind of the study phase. Okay, we've got this funding formula. It's been in place since 1994. We know that things have changed since 1994, so how do we change the funding formula to reflect what's happening in the world in 2017 as opposed to 1994? (laughs) Right. So... The report didn't really yield a whole lot of surprises, and the hard work, I think, is still ahead for this committee. Um, the committee wants to stick together for another year, work through the, the summer of 2017, bring recommendations back to the 2018 legislature. Yep. This legislature still has to sign on to that. Um, I'd kind of be surprised if that didn't happen. What I did find interesting in all of this, and what I found newsworthy, is... Uh, it's going to take some money yeah. to to study this formula and come up with recommendations. Uh, the cost was $400,000, yep. right? To retain analysts and to use some software to model different scenarios about how a proposed new funding formula would impact local school districts is my understanding. Right. And let's put that in context. 400000 sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but we are also talking about a formula that uh, you know, we're talking about you know, almost $1.7 billion next year. So when you put it in that context, spending $400,000 to figure out how to spend that much larger sum of money doesn't feel exorbitant, but uh, the legislature is still going to have to decide, is this worth uh, $400,000 of taxpayer money? We'll keep an eye on it. Yeah, there's a new bill just introduced this week that would put the interim funding committee back to work in 2017. We heard a chance had a chance to hear from Senator Chuck Winder, who is the co-chair on the Senate side of the school funding committee. And he really said, this is when the hard part begins. The last mm-hmm. part was easy. We were getting together. We were reaching out to the education groups. We were collecting feedback. This is when we do the work. This is when we develop the recommendations. And that's the hard part. And it's also when you make some people happy and some people not so happy. I mean, there's only so much money to go around. And if you change the way that money goes around... Someone's going to like what you come up with, and someone's not going to like it. So, uh, you know, 
Uh, good luck to them. That is a tough job. We've said that all along, and uh, the real tough work awaits. All right, sounds good. I want to do a quick preview of next week. I'm going to gaze into my crystal ball and let our listeners know there is a chance that the Senate Education Committee will take up the science standards late next week. If you remember uh, a little over a week ago, the House Education Committee took them up and removed five references uh, to rising global temperatures, climate change, human impact on the environment. That may go before the Senate Education Committee late next week. Uh, It can get complicated on what the options are, but look for one of two things basically to happen. Uh, Either the Senate uh, Committee to concur with the House's recommendations or the Senate Committee uh, to reject them. Uh, Look for one of those two things. What are you going to be watching uh, next week, Kevin? Well, we keep an eye on that. Um, And again, I think we're still kind of waiting now on the budget and, yep. and, and the budget discussion that will come up a week from Monday. Um, you know, that's where a lot of these you know, tougher decisions, especially about evaluations and teacher salaries, that's where we're going to start to get some clarity. And then once that's set, we are on the home stretch to adjourning the legislature, I would think. Uh, they're talking about a March 24th adjournment. Uh, we will see. Um, you know, I'm a little jaded because it doesn't seem like uh, leadership's projections ever really come to fruition, but... <laughs> You know, this one feels like it's it feels like a lot of things are being put on hold until 2018 on not just education, but on other topics. This feels like a legislature that collectively wants to get out of town and and hit this deadline. So this may be the exception uh, as opposed to the rule. And we may actually be out by the 24th of March. Well, we will be there to the end, regardless if it's March 24th or April 24th. Oh, bite your tongue. I hope not. Uh, Anyways, we'll be there uh, regardless of when they adjourn. As always, thank you so much uh, for listening. We really enjoy this podcast, and we hope that you like it too. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at IdahoEdNews. But anyways, thanks so much for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.